According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in the book of Jeremiah this morning. We've been here for, uh, for five weeks, and now we arrive at Jeremiah chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin. Flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin. Before we get started in the study of the Word of God this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to bless our time of study, to sanctify our thinking, to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word this morning and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the prophet Jeremiah and the rejection, the hostility, the uh, horrible circumstances he endured in order to stay faithful, to communicate a message to a people that did not want to hear it, and then to faithfully record that message, to have it written in the canon of Scripture, to be placed in our Bibles that we might study to show ourselves approved. I pray that we might learn these lessons. We might consider our own application, what it is you would call for us to do, Father, as judgment comes. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, flee for safety, O sons of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Now blow a trumpet in Tekoa and raise a signal over Beth Hasarim. For evil looks down from the north in a great destruction. The comely and dainty one, the daughter of Zion, I will cut off. Shepherds and their flocks will come to her. They will pitch their tents around her. They will pasture each in his place. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us, for the day declines, for the shadows of the evening lengthen. Arise, let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says... The Lord of hosts, cut down her trees and cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished, in whose midst there is only oppression. As a well keeps its waters fresh, so she keeps fresh her wickedness. Violence and destruction are heard in her. Sickness and wounds are ever before me. Be warned, O Jerusalem, or I shall be alienated from you and make you a desolation a land not inhabited. All right, there's verses 1 through 8, the first portion of, uh, of this chapter. We're going to handle verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 through 21 will be the longest of the sections that we deal with, with uh, actually five main points I want to get across before our communion service. And then we will wrap it up, verses 22 through 26, with a couple of subpoints, and then final comments on verses 27 through 30. And so that's kind of the game plan for this hour, taking it in really four different sections to try to cover uh, a fairly lengthy chapter here in just uh, one short communion hour. First of all, we start with this warning to flee. There are times that Israel is commanded to flee. There's times Israel is commanded to stand fast. Uh, in the tribulation, for example, they're going to be commanded to flee and to flee so fast, don't even turn back to get a coat. Just whatever you've got with you, run with that and don't go back to the city. If you're on a roof, don't go down the stairs, just jump off the building and keep on running. That's how fast they need to flee Jerusalem during the tribulation of Israel. Here, though, the tribe of Benjamin is warned to flee because the Babylonian army will pass through their territory on the way to demolish Jerusalem. And they are literally between the rock and the hard place when Nebuchadnezzar is approaching from the north. And uh, throw a little map up here to take a look at. Even, uh, I meant to get this out earlier so I can make it larger for you. But when you're looking at Benjamin and where Jerusalem sits... Go ahead and close that, get maximum space here. So here's Jerusalem, all right? And the armies from Nebuchadnezzar, the undefeatable uh, uh, armies that are coming from Nebuchadnezzar, they are approaching from the north. Well, if you're the tribe of Benjamin, 
that yellow area there just to the north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's really on the boundary between the tribal allotment of Judah and the tribal allotment of Benjamin. If you're in the tribe of Benjamin and you know that the Babylonians are, are fixing to demolish Jerusalem and that the main uh, elements of that invading army are coming from the north, um, fleeing is a good idea, <laughs> right? Because that's exactly where Benjamin is located. They are to the north. They are standing in between of Nebuchadnezzar's army and uh, Jerusalem, which is now slated for destruction. And so it's, uh, it's a very timely order here to, uh, to flee. It's also a personal order. It's a personal order because this is where Jeremiah himself is from. He is from a village in the tribe of Benjamin. We saw that five weeks ago in chapter 1. The warning would also cover Jeremiah's own family and village, you might recall. He's from a branch of Levites, a branch of priests that are no longer allowed to serve as priests because of uh, discipline upon Eli's household in the, back in the days of, of uh, Samuel. We saw in the introduction to this book in Jeremiah 1.1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth. The priests who were in Anathoth. The priests, the, the shamed priests, the priests that cannot serve in Jerusalem. The priests that are banned from temple service as a consequence of Eli's um, rebellion. The priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, you'll notice. And so he's not able to serve as a priest, but he's being called as a prophet and he's being called as a youth in, uh, to minister in Jerusalem towards Josiah and all the wicked kings that follow Josiah. We've said several times, good King Josiah, the one who took the throne when he was an eight-year-old little boy, Josiah was the last good king that Judah will ever have. That all the kings after Josiah, including his own sons, three of his own sons and a grandson, that become king after Josiah, every one of them is wicked until the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So the warning to flee would also cover Jeremiah's own family and village. And in fact, even though the armies are coming from the north, they're going to have to be careful as they flee because Tekoa is to the south. And uh, as they attempt to flee, uh, they're going to have to be very careful in the route they choose in their fleeing because Nebuchadnezzar has actually sent encircling forces around and there are elements that have Jerusalem surrounded by this point. And so uh, they, they shouldn't choose the Tekoa route or the Beth Hasarim route. Those are going to be bad choices in, uh, in their escape, even as the main attack comes from the north. The comely and dainty one. When you're looking at the two sisters, when you're looking at the northern sister and the southern sister, remember the northern kingdom of Israel had ten tribes to the north. The southern kingdom of Judah only had two tribes to the south, just Judah and Benjamin that were in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so they were the dainty sister. They were the smaller sister with only two tribes. The ten tribe sister was the, the bigger sister. And the, the younger, the uh, dainty sister was the comely one because she was where Jerusalem was located. This is where the temple was. This is where the glory of Yahweh was uh, made to reside. And yet, being in that favored place, being the host of the glory, does not save them from wrath. It makes the wrath even worse. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And if they are expecting, since they are the, the dwelling place of God's glory, that they're going to be delivered from wrath, they need to think again. Because God's glory will actually be removed from them. The prophet Ezekiel will watch the glory of God depart from the Holy of Holies out to the Mount of Olives and then disappear. And the glory is gone. And the last hope that Jerusalem had of being rescued is, is effectively gone once the Shekinah glory departs from uh, Jerusalem at that time. <clears throat> In verses 4 and 5, we uh, are kind of brought into the tents. The, the military planners are uh, uh, discussing tactics and strategy. And it's interesting, while the military planners are debating tactics, some are saying a morning attack, a noon attack, a nighttime attack. And uh, the more they plan, the longer it takes. And if you talk too long, well, now it's too late for that early attack. Um, and who wants to attack at night anyway? You're better off just getting a good night's sleep and attacking first thing in the morning. Unless, maybe that's what the enemy thinks you're going to do, and so you can surprise him with a nighttime attack. 
In this case, they're debating their tactics and their strategy, worried about the shadows lengthening and other things. Meanwhile, God is done with their planning. He says, go do it. Go destroy it. The Lord himself is the one who's issuing the orders. The Lord himself has already decreed the victory. And so there's a bit of back and forth in these verses where you have the the earthly human generals that are planning their tactics there in verses uh, 4 and 5, and yet you've got God himself speaking. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 6, cut down her trees and cast up a siege against Jerusalem. This city is to be punished. And God wants them punished now, immediately, if not sooner, in uh, the judgment that he is bringing. And so we have some uh, interesting details there. The bulk of my time today, I do want to spend on verses 9 through 21. At what point does God stop issuing the warnings? And I find it interesting. God never stops issuing the warnings even when those who should be hearing the warnings, they're done listening. They no longer have the ears to hear. And what we learn here in verses 9 through 21 is that Judah no longer has ears to hear any more warnings from the Lord. Now, by the time the judgment comes, we've got, we're dealing with wicked kings. We're dealing with Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. We're dealing with these wicked, wicked kings. And none of them care what Yahweh has to say. They're very hostile to any ministry Jeremiah ever has. They are, um, they're listening to false prophets. They're listening to the, to the, uh, the prosperity gospel people, <laughs> the people that are preaching health, wealth, and prosperity, that are promising them that Babylon's about to fall and Jerusalem is going to be rescued. They're trying to repeat the Isaiah miracle with Hezekiah. They want to watch the angel of the Lord come over and kill 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. All right, that's what he did in Isaiah's day when King Hezekiah was on the throne. Well, is that going to happen now that the Babylonians are at the gate? Not at all. The Babylonians are going to destroy destroy this city. And uh, Judah no longer has the ears to hear. Verse 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, They will thoroughly glean as the vine the remnant of Israel. Pass your hand again like a grape gatherer over the branches. Typical agricultural practice is when you're harvesting your field, you make one pass through the vineyard and that's where you stop. You don't make a second or a third pass. You don't try to exhaustively get every grape off the vine. You just make one pass through your field, through your vineyard, because you're making provision for the poor of the land, the needy and the poor. They don't just get free government handouts. They've got to go work for their food. And the working for their food is to go obtain some of those gleanings. They get to go to the land that's already been harvested, the fields that have already been harvested and reaped. They get to go and pick up some of those gleanings. Well, that's not necessary with this judgment. The Babylonians can take all the grapes they want because uh, God is not leaving even gleanings behind for the poor of the land after uh, Jerusalem is destroyed. To whom shall I speak and give warning? You know, like a depressed pastor saying, who's going to bother showing up this morning anyway? Who should I bother preaching to? To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are closed and they cannot listen. The hardness of heart that they're under leaves them unable to even listen to the warnings ever again. They are given over to this hardness of heart, given over to the closed ears. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. And I'm sure you know people that would, wouldn't uh, attend Austin Bible Church to save their life. They don't have time for doctrine. They don't want to know what the Bible says. They're pretty sure they got a rough idea what the Bible says, and it doesn't line up with what they want it to say. And so this is the last place they're going to show up to hear what the Lord says through the word of God. That's the case of Judah as Babylon has them surrounded. And so uh, it's described here, they have no delight in it. Not only verse 10, but also um, another verse, verse 17 here in the same passage. Hardness of heart closes ears to truth. All right, this was true in their day, it's true for us today. Jot this down and consider it. Ask whether you have the appetite you used to have. 
ask whether you have the appetite you ought to have. Should there be an increased appetite? Should Are my ears as wide open as they should be? Or are they kind of open, kind of closed, on the way to closing even more? Ask yourself where your heart is and where your ears are. As it's described here, we already read verse 10. You get down to verse 17. I set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Remember, the whole point of a warning trumpet is that it's going to give a signal. And that's the nature when Paul uses trumpets to illustrate in the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. And the reason why we have trumpets is trumpets are able to give a signal. And you ought to be able to listen. Is that when the trumpet sounds, was that the attack signal or the flea signal? (laughs) Was that a charge or was that retreat? All right, what was the signal? Oh, that was just chow. Okay, dinner time. All right, whatever the signal is, you got different military signals for different things. You know, is it reveille? Am I getting up in the morning or is it taps? Am I going to bed at night? What is, you know, the army's got all kinds of signals and they still to this day use, it's largely ceremonial anymore, but they, they use trumpets to, to signify, like I say, reveille in the morning and taps at night and, and other things. Well, the problem in the New Testament, of course, if the trumpet is indistinct, then how do the people know what to do? If the trumpet is indistinct, if the message is not communicating, it's useless. Okay, and that's, that's Paul's doctrine of the trumpets there. But in, in this passage, there's nothing wrong with the trumpets. The, the, the watchmen are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Jeremiah's given his message. Trumpets, great. The warnings are coming. It's the ears. The people aren't listening for the trumpet. They said, we will not listen. We will not listen. They, they would much rather just assemble uh, the ear ticklers. They want us like the apostasy of the church age. They don't want to listen to sound doctrine. They're going to accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires, wanting to have their ears tickled. Give me the happy message. Preach to me that Babylon is about to be destroyed. I'm going to listen to that one. All right? And it's not about the objective reality of truth. What's true, what's not true is irrelevant. It's what do I want to hear? Tell me I'm okay. Tell me we're good. Tell me we're going to live. Tell me Babylon is going away. My problems are all gone. I can live long and prosper, all right? Or whatever I can do. I can just be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Tell me these messages. That's what I want to hear. And uh, we have it described here. Over in Second Chronicles. Say, so whoever turns to Chronicles? Well, we need to do more. Second Chronicles 36. In particular... This is the chapter in Chronicles whereby uh, Babylon comes and, and destroys Jerusalem. And in this context, we've got uh, Jehoahaz, and then Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiachin. And uh, <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Verse 10 at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon. This is uh, Jehoiachin who's brought and he's made a captive uh, with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord. He made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Now Zedekiah was appointed by the Babylonians, but Zedekiah is not in the life of Christ. He's not in the line of Christ. All right, Zedekiah is an uncle. Uh, Jehoiachin is the, uh, is the line of Christ. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God, did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. In other words, he didn't listen to Jeremiah chapter 6, what you guys are listening to this morning. And uh, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people who were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations as they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. 
All right, that's what they're dealing with. That's the response to Jeremiah's ministry. In fact, any believer that had any positive volition to doctrine was already a captive in Babylon. Daniel and his friends were taken in in 605 B.C. Uh, Ezekiel and 10,000 more captives were taken in 597 B.C. More than a decade prior to the destruction, God had already saved and rescued a remnant. All right, like he got Lot out of Sodom. He gets his remnant out of Jerusalem. And they're safely now captives in Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar ever comes and destroys. In fact, the last believer standing is Jeremiah himself inside the walls as Jerusalem comes, uh, those walls come crashing down. We'll see that as we work our way through these chapters. In fact, in the New Testament, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he, de- he describes this, he calls it resisting the Holy Spirit resisting the Holy Spirit in Acts 7 and verse 51. If you close your ears to doctrine in the church age, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Seven times we're told, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit communicates to the local churches. And so we're saved, we have ears, we're commanded to listen, we're commanded to hear. And if we don't, we are in defiance. We are closing our ears. We're closing our heart. We are resisting the Holy Spirit. This is in Stephen's uh, final message as they are uh, getting ready to stone him here. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Uncircumcised in heart and ears interesting expression in fact he's rendering the hebrew literally this this term closed ears is uncircumcised ears in in jeremiah chapter six all right stephen's using it literally and calling them uncircumcised in heart and ears they are closed to the things of god now even if your ears are closed be careful because ears that are closed to truth are still open to lies. This is the thing. Ears that are closed to truth. This is different than physical ears. You know, if you shove cotton in your physical ears, then you're blocking all kinds of sound from getting in there. With physical ears. If you just pack your ears full of whatever, then you're blocking any sound from getting into your physical ears. Okay? Not the case with your spiritual ears. The spiritual ears of your soul... If you are in carnality, if you are not walking in the light, the spiritual ears of your soul can be closed to the truth, but that just opens them wide to the lie. And you will hear those lies loud and clear. You will hear exactly what you want to hear. Say, you know, like a child when you say, you know, make your bed, make your bed, make your bed, take out the trash, mow the lawn. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And you could shout it as loud and they'll never hear, they'll never hear. But when you say ice cream is scooped, man, they're right there at the table. They're ready for the dessert. It's amazing that selective capacity for hearing. But here's the thing, the spiritual ears, you can be absolutely tone deaf to doctrine, to the truth of the word of God. And yet you're hearing those lies loud and clear. Peace in our time. Oh yeah, preach it right? Come on, you're preaching to the choir now. Tell me more. Sing it over again to me, right? Um, These wonderful words of peace. And in Jeremiah 6.14, they have healed. Notice, uh, let's see, I haven't read all these verses yet. I stopped with verse 10 and there's wrath in verse 11. I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I'm weary of holding it in. Jeremiah was having a tough time. He tried to hold some of it in, couldn't do it pour out on the children in the street on the gathering of the young men together both husband and wife shall be taken the aged and the very old their houses shall be turned over to others that's just wrath all through these verses from the greatest to the least of them in verse 13 everyone is greedy for gain from the prophet even to the priest everyone deals falsely everybody is just a bunch of liars the prophets and the priests those that are listening to them remember he already did his survey looking for one righteous person couldn't find one They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. 
All right, it's just a superficial healing, which is really a no healing at all. It's like a placebo. They're just given this little sugar pill and, and told, hey, it's a miracle cure, right? It's, uh, you know, it's mommy kissing the boo-boo and that makes it feel so much better. Does it really do anything objectively, effectively whatsoever? Nothing at all. But psychologically, oh yeah, it feels great. Thanks, mom. Whatever the case, that's these prophets, these false prophets, these liars, all right, a superficial peace, peace, but there is no peace. To this day, the, the Israeli prime minister and the Knesset and the Jewish population of Israel to this day will bend over backwards and believe every terrorist under the sun, even Yasser Arafat, oh, you're promising me peace? Okay, right? And you think, what a bunch of dummies. Why would you even believe such a thing? Because they're not listening with spiritual ears. They're not yet in the land in, in faith. They're there in unbelief. And a day is coming, they're going to trust Antichrist. They're going to sign a seven-year treaty with the son of Satan, even though Daniel chapter 9 tells them all about it. They'll sign it anyway. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Similar uh, admonishment that comes. We'll be here in uh, a couple of weeks. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not even know how to blush. We'll see that today. That's coming up later in in our chapter today. They don't even know how to blush. They're so steeped in their sin, they forgot that it is a sin. They forgot that, ooh, I'm supposed to kind of keep that under wraps. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, you get caught and you... You've been so steeped in it, you didn't even realize that getting caught was a problem. That, oh, you mean there's something wrong with that? They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. As the time, at the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, says the Lord. Ezekiel uses a slightly different idiom, but he teaches the same message. He says that these false prophets are uh, useless. And what they're doing... They're not building a real wall. They're, they're building a, a whitewashed wall and uh, painting it over to look like a real wall. They're actually you, it's like a stage prop on a, on a, on a, a stage set somewhere in a, in a theater production. All right, It's not a real wall. It's not something that's going to repel uh, you know, catapults or artillery or any battering rams or anything of the adversary. It's just a dummy little plaster wall. And it's painted over, it's disguised to look like it's a real castle wall. And then they're going to war thinking, yeah, we're good, all right, until a real army hits a fake wall and it's shown for what it is. That's Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 10. Uh, It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. And uh, even the, when you get to the following verses there, the, the rain and the hailstones and the wind are going to expose it for what it is. It's not even a real wall. And of course, 2 Timothy 4.3, descriptive of our generation, that uh, they're not going to tolerate sound doctrine. That, uh, you know, the apostasy of, uh, of a lukewarm attitude, I think it's the apostasy of 21st century American Christianity by and large. Sometimes I call it churchianity in uh, people that are very churchy but not so Christian. You know what I'm talking about? And um, as far as having time for the Word of God, they don't have time for that. 2 Timothy 4.3 The time will come when they will not endure. This is why pastors have to be exhorted. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by His appearing and by His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And that's what we have, by and large. That's what's packing the, packing the house in many venues. They will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. And so any pastor, that, this ought to be an ordination message. Typically this chapter becomes an ordination charge every time a pastor has the laying on of hands and begins his public ministry as a minister of the Word of God. 
Defiant sin. Defiant sin destroys the conscience, leaving no capacity for shame. Defiant sin destroys the conscience, leaving no capacity for shame. Forgetting how to blush is the expression. We saw it a few moments ago in chapter 8. As I said, there's a verse here in chapter 6 that also addresses it. It's verse 15. Jeremiah 6.15. This was prophesied, by the way, by uh, Isaiah back in Hezekiah's day. He said, you're going to reach this point. And they did. Isaiah 3.9. Even in the New Testament, Philippians 3.19 speaks about this. This is who we have to be on guard against in the church age. But Jeremiah 6.15, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Boy, 6.15 sure sounds an awful lot like 18.12, or like 8.12. Yeah, it does. All right. Jeremiah's a preacher after my own heart. He repeats himself. (laughs) He gives messages over and over and over again. And his people probably say, come on, Jeremiah. You gave this already on Wednesday night. Move on. New material. Repetition pounds it home, drives it in. And if they're not listening anyway, what's the point? You know, and just keep preaching it. That's in season or out of season, whether they're listening or not. See, if you don't faithfully give the warning, then the blood is on your hands. But if you do faithfully give the warning, you are washing your hands and now it's on them. If they don't listen, then it comes to them. So long as you gave the warning, your hands are clean. That's uh, clear in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. We have different verses there that speak of that. Isaiah 3, 9. And in, you know, we have this. I think we understand this. Forgetting how to blush, not knowing how to blush. Isaiah 3, 9. There used to be circumstances that were aspects of shame. We've lost that. There's a value in shame. There's a, actually there's a public value in public shame. There's a community benefit when a community has standards of righteousness. Even if they're not saved, if they're following God's righteousness, there's a community benefit. Well, the expression of their faces bears witness against them. They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. They don't even conceal it. They're marching in a parade. You know, pride. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. They have brought evil on themselves. See, you know, a generation ago there was a closet. And why was there a closet? Why did they come out of a closet? There isn't even a closet anymore. Well, if there is, that's what they're shoving us into. If you, if you speak uh, against sin, you're a bigot. You're a hater. At least that's what I read on Facebook this week. <laughs> person told me, said, I hope you're not a pastor. <laughs> well, sorry. I'm going to have to break your heart there. Philippians 3.19. You know, there used to be a girl in high school that was with child. She was... Um, taken out of the school to a different school. They had an alternative high school. They were brought out of sight. That was an aspect that was shameful in, 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 in different things. Now it's uh, celebrated. Now we've got daycares in the schools and we've got uh, different things. All right, Philippians chapter 3. Verse 17 says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you. There's Paul, full of hate, preaching against these other people. Many times, often. And now I tell you even weeping. He's not happy to preach this, but they need to hear it. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. You know who your friends are. You know who your enemies are. Quit mixing them up. It's not love to call evil good and good evil. It's evil to call evil good and good evil. They are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. You want to get on board with that? Whose God is their appetite. And there's all kinds of appetites in this world. Food, alcohol, sex, you name it. There's all kinds of appetites and they've turned it into their God. 
notice, whose glory is in their shame. Rather than being ashamed of it, it becomes their glory. It becomes what they boast in. They can boast in what used to be shameful and outdo one another in their own shameful glory who set their minds on earthly things. That's the wisdom from below, which is earthly, natural, demonic. All right? And they set their minds on earthly things. What's the worst thing? I mean, making a mistake, committing a sin, that's bad enough. But you can recover from a sin. You can repent. You can confess. You can be restored to fellowship. You can learn from a mistake. But when you deny that it is a mistake, and when you glorify that mistake, and when you redefine your mistake into something good and wonderful and amazing, you have just locked yourself into a mindset. And the mindset of this uh, shame is death. All right? We want to avoid that mindset as we see here. Defiant sin destroys the capacity. The facet of soul we call conscience. What happens when you lose that? As Paul talks about, their conscience is seared as with a branding iron. The branding iron just sears it, and there's no more sensitivity anymore. There's no more feeling. There's no more, you can't even tell. You can't even blush. You have no more sense of shame. Back to Jeremiah. I could preach this for a month of Sundays. But I don't have a month of Sundays, or I do, but it's one chapter per Sunday. So let's get back to chapter 6. They don't even know how to blush. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. Maybe this will wake them up. Tradition. Heritage, family customs, where the good way is and walk in it, you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You know, at a certain point, even traditions don't do you any good. Appeals to heritage and tradition are equally useless. Appeals to heritage and tradition are equally useless. You know, there are some folks that aren't really living the Word of God at all, not on a spiritual basis. They are clinging to a form of godliness even while they deny its power. They, you know, they grew up in a Catholic church or whatever. They grew up with some kind of a tradition and they, every so often they try to at least have some kind of a morality of some sort because, you know, their Catholic mom or their Jewish mom or some grandmother's harping on them or what have you. At least they've got some kind of a cultural tradition that maintains the laws of divine establishment or some temporal standard of sanity. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that counts on an eternal basis for spiritual production, but at least on a temporal basis for uh, political considerations and earthly considerations, the laws of divine establishment through tradition, if nothing else, can provide some measure of rescue but even that's gone even that is now gone in jeremiah's day the uh, traditions of the elders the heritage of days gone by you know when jesus was on the cross he was claiming the deliverance of god the father and he was reminding the father of days gone by he said in you the fathers trusted and in you they were not disappointed he was able to claim scripture he was able to quote doctrine and he was able to also Rest confidently in the heritage and tradition of the Jewish people and the faithfulness of God towards the Jewish people. But here we have it, all right? The ancient ways. Now, again, you don't want to push this too far. Some people can substitute tradition over against the commandments of God, right? The Pharisees did that. They magnified traditions to the point that they were ignoring Scripture for the sake of upholding these man-made traditions. All right, so you don't want to reverse the order and you don't want to magnify the traditions or the ancient ways over the revealed Word of God. But ideally, you want both of them in tandem. You want both of them to be lined up. If you have, for example, if you have believing parents and believing grandparents, then you have in your personal family, you've got traditions and customs and there's a great benefit in that. Absolutely, there's a great benefit in that. 
All right, well, it'll come back again in chapter 18. Moses exhorted them in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 7. Quickly, in Jeremiah 18, this theme comes back again. My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient paths to walk in bypaths, not on a highway. You know, if comparing this new path, this new track they're picking out for themselves compared to the path that he laid down for them is no comparison. Deuteronomy 32, 7, as Moses was preparing to die, he addressed this. And you remember here is uh, the Exodus gener- uh, the wilderness generation that has to learn from the failure of the Exodus generation, but also going back even to the patriarchs before their Egyptian captivity. Remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, he will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. It's kind of a unique thing when the oldest guy around you is 40 years old. Okay, because everybody over 20 was killed and now uh, they've been 20 more years in the wilderness and their elders are the, you know, the old timers are the men in their 40s, except for Caleb and Joshua. Anyway, appeals to heritage and tradition. Finally, human nations and and the angelic congregation are called to witness God's justice. Jeremiah 6, 18 Even the earth itself is called to bear witness. Nations, those will be human nations, and then the congregation is usually thought of as the congregation of Israel. In other words, both Gentiles and Israel are called to witness. I think that's the problem, though. The witnesses, uh, Jerusalem is not being a witness against itself. This is the angelic congregation, I believe, that's in view. Same Hebrew word is used in both contexts. But Jeremiah 6.18, Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. And the among them is the congregation of Israel. That is the last remnant of Jerusalem that is about to come into destruction. I believe this is uh, the human nations that are watching the character of God unfold and the angels that are watching the character of God unfold. And we know that from Ephesians 3 and all kinds of other places. Angels watch us. God teaches angels His grace and His mercy through us. Okay? The church teaches manifold wisdom and grace. Israel teaches righteousness and justice. And the angels have to learn both lessons. Likewise, creation, hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it also. Even creation is called to witness. Like in Romans 8, creation witnesses the futility that man is placed under. Creation groans, waiting for the redemption of the sons of man. The earth bears witness. When Cain murdered Abel, what happened? The blood was crying out from the ground and Yahweh came to walk upon the earth to investigate why the blood of righteous Abel was was crying out from the ground. I'd probably spend uh, two or three weeks just on this slide alone. All right, teaching what happens when sin defiles a land. Understand these sins, the sexual sins and the bloodshedding sins, murder, violence, and fornication. Not only do they defile the sinner, whereby you have personal consequences for the things you do, but they also defile the land because your culture is going to pay the price. Your territory will pay the price. Your land will eventually vomit. And what they vomit is you. And then God proceeds to give your land to a new people. Say, there's a reason why this is no longer Comanche territory. All right? And who's it going to be after it's no longer American territory? God's in charge of that. All right, if you want more on this, I would point out Ezekiel 39, verses 21 and 23. Also Psalm 82 for the angelic congregation. 
they observe the judicial function of God and his wrath upon the earth. Even the earth itself, Jeremiah 6.19, related to Genesis 4.10, that's the earth testifying to Abel's murder. Leviticus 18, verses 27 and 28, oh, look out, okay, again, hate speech. Um, Fornicators, let me tell you, extramarital, premarital, non-marital, outside of marriage is fornication. Inside of marriage is called the marriage bed. Outside of marriage is called fornication. It defiles the sinner and it defiles the land until the land vomits. Job 31, verses 38 through 40. Job even invites his personal real estate to testify to his innocence because he knows that he's innocent. And then Romans 8, where all creation groans because of Adam's sin, waiting for the redemption of Adamic humanity, the new heavens and new earth. There won't be any groaning on the new earth because sinless humanity for a thousand generations on the new earth, that's what we're looking forward to, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it's according to his promise we're looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we have the testimony. God is righteous in all that he does. Not only is he righteous in all that he does, he proves himself righteous in all that he does. He has to not only be just, but he has to be the justifier of the unjust, and he has to be publicly viewed as being just in the justifying of the unjust. That's Romans chapter 4. Wow. Romans 4 in 30 seconds. How about that? But he has to be publicly viewed as just that he's righteous for passing over those sins previously committed. He has to be displayed as eternally just or the angels can cry foul. And then humanity doesn't resolve the angelic conflict the way that it's designed to do. All right, goodness. The approaching invaders are then described. In 22 through 26, I told you the bulk of this chapter comes in verses 9 through 21. And there is so much doctrine, just those five points of study. Hardness of heart, ears that are closed to truth and open to lies, defiant sin that destroys the conscience, appeals to heritage and and tradition, and then the witnessing of the nations and the angels alike, and creation itself called to witness the justice of God. Now we have a description in verses 22 through 26 of this invading army. Thus says the Lord, behold, a people is coming from the north land and a great nation will be aroused from the remote parts of the north. We have the north and the uttermost parts of the north. And some of this is historical and some of this is is eschatological. We have a dual fulfillment in this paragraph. We have a fulfillment of Scripture as it pertains to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies that come, but we're also looking beyond the 5th century B.C. We're looking, or 6th century B.C. We're looking to eschatology. We're looking to the end times. We're talking about Antichrist and, and his invasion from the uttermost north. We have uh, references to birth pangs and the destroyer. Notice in verse 24, birth pangs. We have heard uh, the report of it. Our hands are limp. Anguish has seized us. Pain as of a woman in childbirth. When you're going through labor and childbirth, the last thing you want to do is fend off an invading army. Right? You just want to get that baby out and and be done. You know? You're tired of being pregnant. You want to be a mom and get that baby out. Okay? In In the anguish of labor. This is what the tribulation is described as in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. We also have the destroyer. There's a character for you, the destroyer. In verse 26, suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. And eschatologically, we have the person of Antichrist in, in uh, the destroyer in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Boy, I spent some time preaching that, huh? Understand, though, it's fun in 1 Thessalonians because chapter 4 is our message for the church. That's the rescue. That's the rapture. That's delivered from the wrath to come. Chapter 5 is not our message. Chapter 5 is for them. Chapter 5 is for the people that don't get saved and listen to chapter 4. All right, For the people who aren't raptured in chapter 4, they've got to deal with the destroyer and the birth pangs and the wrath of God in chapter 5. The day of the Lord is chapter 5. The rapture is chapter 4. 
It's a powerful development there for a pre-tribulational rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Can't preach it in two minutes, so you'll just have to follow up on your own. The rest of the chapter now, Jeremiah is appointed as the assayer, the assayer of Jerusalem. He's going to survey. Verse 27, I've made you an assayer and a tester among my people that you may know and assay their way. My apologies, I intended to look that up and learn where the accented syllable was. Now I just got to wing it and display my ignorance. An assayer, an assayer, and a tester among my people that you may know and assay their ways. Jeremiah is going to spend his life measuring them and they're going to be found wanting. He's going to measure them, measuring them for judgment. It's like the Mene Mene Tikalufarshan. They're going to be measured and they're going to be falling short throughout his entire earthly ministry. And this foreshadows what the Lord himself is going to do during Israel's coming tribulation. You can read Zechariah 13, 9, where the Lord sends forth the assayer and the tester. He's going to refine them like silver is refined in the fire, like the fuller soap. Matthew 3, verses 2 and 3. The ministry of, of Jeremiah is going to be a uh, testing the metal, and they're never going to measure up. The fire is supposed to purify the impurities, remove the dross, leave the, the pure metal behind, and every fire Jeremiah hits them with, it's all dross. There's nothing pure left behind. The purities have already been rescued and taken to Babylon in their captivity. The fire of Jeremiah's message is just exposing all the, the darkness for what it is. It's a crushing ministry, and yet he's faithful. Absolutely faithful every step of the way. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the very practical admonitions that we can take in our day and age we can apply today in the church. I ask that we would learn these lessons and that we would have ears to hear. The open ears, the circumcised ears and circumcised hearts. We want to listen to truth, Father. We want to completely ignore the lies. We want to turn from evil while we embrace what is good. Father, teach us these lessons. Teach us uh, the aspects of blushing and shame. Teach us how to be pure. Uh, to To the pure, all things are pure, Father, and instill that within each one of us. Teach us these lessons, Father, that we might constantly bear in mind the observation we're under. We are on display to the angelic realm. Let us be displays of mercy and wisdom and grace. I do thank you for your truth, and I ask, Father, that we would be quick to hear, that we would accept it with humility, receiving the word implanted that's able to save our souls. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.